Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2 and 26 to 28. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Gracious God, in this moment of silent reflection, perhaps the most silent we've been all week, it's still so difficult for us to be truly still as we think about our concerns, what feels like the weight of the world, as we read through the news feed, as we remember the events of September 11th, 20 years ago and the wars that have ensued since then. As we traffic through yet another week of the COVID Delta variant and are just fatigued. As we have hope for the future that we can't see. As we have that inner critic that buzzes inside our own minds telling us that your best days are behind you. And maybe those people will write about you and you are a failure. We come to this moment from so many different perspectives. Some of us exhausted, others apathetic, just jumping from one piece of entertainment to the next because actually paying attention and engaging is too painful. 
We come to this moment believing and trusting, unbelieving and skeptical with questions and doubts. Most of us, a mixture of all these things. And so we ask now that you'd help us to see that as different as we are from one another, that we have far more in common than we realize. Each of us is created in your image and likeness, as we just heard. And each of us is broken, fractured, fallen, what we might call a beautiful mess. And you see us in all our complexity and contradiction. You know us to our depths, and your response is not to say, yuck, and run away, or to crush or condemn, but rather to run toward us in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, in his sacrificial, self-giving love. And so we pray now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would wake us up to that great story and help us to enter into it. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A couple weeks ago, I was in San Francisco officiating a wedding. Let me say, amidst the COVID pandemic, it is a joy, it's always a joy to officiate a good wedding. It's especially a joy to do it after not being able to officiate a wedding for so long. And this wedding was beautiful, and and the reception was at this country club. And so we all go to the country club, and it had been organized into several different venues for entertainment and revelry, including a banquet room and a happy hour outside on the greens of this golf course. And there was one area that had a string quartet playing. It was kind of a room about this size, and I actually knew some of the musicians because they had played at our church in San Francisco, and so I was quite interested in this music. The only problem was nobody else was interested in this music. And it showed because everyone was talking the entire time. It was this raucous crowd. At one point, the the conversation was so loud you almost couldn't hear the music, though it was right there. And at some point, someone dropped their cocktail glass and it shattered and then that made a a bit of an uproar and they cleaned all that up. But then, the wedding coordinator came in and she invited everybody into the banquet hall. Except I knew two things. I had the schedule, number one. I knew I wasn't needed over there for 25 minutes to say grace over dinner. And two, I knew this string quartet was under contract for another half hour. So I found the plushest, most beautiful, comfy chair I could and wheeled it over in front of this little half circle of a string quartet and had my very own concerto right there at the country club. I got to joke with the musicians in between songs listen to their emotions and thoughts and experiences with arranging such a beautiful composition. I got to bathe in this wash of music as it came over me. The thing is, it had always been there. We just couldn't hear it because of all the chatter and commotion and confusion and things breaking. And today, we go back to the very beginning where God decides to put the needle on the record and start the song of creation. And amidst all of our confusion and things breaking and the uproar, the uproar out there, the storm that brews inside each one of us, the invitation is to listen to the true tone of the universe. A good God who overflows with creative love has so much of it that it has to overflow out 
God did not create humanity because God was lonely and needed someone to love God. God created humanity because God couldn't help himself. The true tone of the universe is creative love that goes outward. You know, for thousands of years, we've been asking questions about where we come from and who we are and where we're going. And Genesis 1 is one of these excellent sources that help us understand. And at the same time, it's frustrating. Because Genesis 1 never claims to be a science textbook. It's not concerned with telling you how the cosmos were formed. It's concerned with telling you why they were created. And meaning. And what we notice is when God speaks, chaos becomes cosmos. When God's word goes out, it moves from disorder to order. And without going too far into the details, we do need to pull over to the side for one second and just talk about biblical interpretation and the importance of understanding the genre of the literature that we're considering today. See, the Bible is not one book, big book written by one author from beginning to end in one sit-down session. It's a collection of 66 different works that were compiled by different authors who came from different countries at times, speaking in different languages, writing at different times for different audiences, using different genres. It's critical that we understand that when we read scripture. And it uses different types of language. So I'll give you an example. There's logos language. Logos language is concerned with facts, evidence, data, proof. This is the language of a manual. You want the pilot of the plane you're flying on to use logos language when communicating with the tower. Exact language. You want your doctor to use logos language when communicating with your surgeon or whoever's coordinating the treatment. Logos language. Anybody in technology, you're using logos language, okay? But there's a different language that we find in Genesis 1. Mythos language. Language that isn't less than true, it's actually more than true, but it gets the point across in a completely different way. I'll give you an example. If someone asks, we have three boys, Florence and I have three boys. If someone asks, what's it like to go from two to three children? Logos language would be, well, you burn about 215 calories more per day. You get 43 minutes less of sleep per night. You have higher highs and lower lows about seven times per day. Mythos language would say, well, imagine you're drowning in the ocean and someone hands you a baby. <laughs> or it would say, your heart swells with love. This is mythos language. It's nothing less than true. It actually over-communicates truth, but in an entirely different way. Myths don't play according to Logos rules. Logos can get us to the moon but it cannot describe what it's like to be on the moon and look back at that blue dot of the earth. Only mythos language can get us there. And so today we read in Genesis 1, conveying in this sort of language, the God who blesses, the blessing itself, and how we enter into that blessing. First, the God who blesses. We just heard 
what men, women, and children around the world in every continent and time zone and language have heard as described as the origin of the universe. Now, when the author says in the beginning, this is not the beginning of God, because God always has been, is now, and always will be. God is infinite, but creation is finite. And at the engine of the universe depicts a revolutionary, radical image of the divine reality that is completely different than any of the other creation narratives of the time. See, the people who would have first heard this story in exile in Babylon would have been aware of the Babylonian creation narrative. Maybe you studied this in social studies back in high school, the Enuma Elish, the Mesopotamian story of creation. And in tablet four, it tells you the creation of the world is violence. Because the great god Marduk got into this fight with the lesser god Tiamat, and Marduk murdered Tiamat and ripped open the entrails of this other god and through all of that, creation came. Creation is the entrails of a murdered victim and that's where we come from. And when you have a creation story like that, it leads to the carnage, murder, and oppression that Babylon was known for in its time. And then this story comes along and says, oh no, no. The origin of the story is completely different. A different worldview altogether. In the beginning, a wind from God swept over the waters. These words, wind and waters, were completely loaded. Wind. The Hebrew word ruach, also translated as spirit or breath. Waters, the place where they knew. The waters were the untamable place of chaos. The place where if you sail too far, you fall off the edge into oblivion and get eaten by a sea dragon. The place you could not tame. And so the point is, God's spirit enters into the chaos and brings something new out of it. God's spirit moves toward the place of death and brings a life out of it. Can you imagine what this must have sounded like? to the Israelites in exile in Babylon who felt like it was nothing but darkness and death and confusion to be reminded that God actually moves into the most broken parts of your life. I wonder how your life would be different right now as you face your particular circumstances and fears. As you list them out and you say, God has a history of moving toward confusion and chaos like this. Because the main question is this. Is the engine of the universe violence and destruction? Or is it overflowing creativity and joy? How you answer that question will drive all sorts of behaviors and perspective and worldview in your life. And the Bible presents an engine of joy. A divine being who loves to make things. And then it says, you were created in the image and likeness of that God. I mean, don't you think that might be why deep down you have some hunger or drive to create things? Whether you're making art or songs or a new app or a new program or you're trying to create a great team that you're leading 
at work, whether you're trying to create a great home and a place for your children or a great neighborhood, whether you're working for social justice and making a great world, it is in you to have creative love flow out of you. And this is why. Because you were created in the image of this God. Which means that tomorrow when you wake up and you go out into this world and you say, whatever my post might be in education or in, any, in real estate, in construction, in hospitality, you say, whatever my post may be, I want to bring something new, beautiful, and life-giving into this world today. You are actually joining with the God that created you in the mission to renew all things. Your workplace will never be the same. Instead of your job being that thing that defines you and drives you, it can actually be that place where you could be of greatest service. I had this wonderful conversation with somebody this week. I have a side job where I coach business executives to communicate to influence. And often this job puts me in front of Fortune 500 executives with very high-powered jobs, managing multi-million dollar budgets. And I met with this one person on Friday. And they confided. How do you speak publicly? How do you get in front of someone without thinking about how you're coming across, how you look, how you think about yourself the whole time? Me, 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 me. Because our ego always gets involved. And I gave her the advice I'll give you. My ego is as active as any one of yours, I guarantee it. It has miracle growth. It gets sprayed on it every night. It wakes up fresh and ready to go because it's all about me. That's what it wants to think. But as soon as you believe that, you're looking through the telescope from the wrong way, my friend. What if you can get up and say, whatever I'm going to do at work today, help me to be of maximum service to every person that's in front of me. I want to be great at my job because I want everyone that I serve to be amazing and have full experience of life. That's a whole different way of going about your job. You can pursue excellence not because it's the idol that drives and defines you. You can pursue excellence because it actually radiates light out into this broken world. A new sense of meaning altogether. The other thing that we find in this God who creates is that at the core of the universe is not only creative love that goes out, but it's relational community. Okay. I'm not going to nerd out too much with you on the original Hebrew here, which most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, New Testament, most of it was in Greek. In Hebrew, though, in verse 1, the word for God, let's start there, Elohim. That's actually a plural word. That is a word with a plural ending. So here's the thing. It's describing from the very beginning some sort of singular being with some sort of plurality to it. Ever since then, people who have been getting in touch with God have been asking the question, is God one or many? It goes on in verse 26, God says, let us make humankind in our image. And then in the next verse, 27, so God created humankind in his image, right? Plural, singular. If you go back to verse 1 and 2, first we find the creator and then we find the Spirit of God. And by verse 3, the Word of God is going out and creating. God the Creator, God the Spirit, God the Word. The nature of the divine is both singular and plural. This is the formation of what Christians call the doctrine of the Trinity. That God is one God eternally existing in three persons. Stick with me here because this is critical. You see the first family photo of the Trinity in Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized. And you have Jesus, who Scripture describes as the Word made flesh, 
coming out of the waters with the voice of God the creator coming from the heavens and the spirit of God alighting like a dove upon Jesus. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God. There are a million implications, but I want to give you one. What was God doing before creation? Correct answer, nobody knows. Here's my guess. From before time, throughout all eternity, and stretching on beyond the farthest horizon you can imagine, the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have been eternally dancing around with one another, loving one another, sacrificially giving toward one another, pouring into one another forever. And that's at the engine of the universe. Theologians use this beautiful word perichoresis to describe what the three members of the Trinity are doing. We've talked about this before. Peri, like you use in perimeter, around. Choresis, like you use in choreography. The three persons of the Trinity have been dancing around with one another throughout all eternity. Lavishing love on one another. This is why you know life is not just about you. This is why the most lonely people you know are the people who live life just for themselves. This is why you know the most cold people you know are people who hoard their resources just for themselves. You were designed to allow your life, your connection, your community, your love, your generosity to flow out into others. And when you do, you become more truly alive. My kids and I talk about this at home. What's the only thing you can give more and more away of every day and still have more? The only thing. Love. Test it. Try it. Why do you think that is? This passage tells you it's because you were made for it. You were built for it. This is why when we're planting this church, renewed church, we're not saying our goal is to be as big as we can because we need to be a mega church. Not at all. Our goal is to be a mega impact in this neighborhood, to pour ourselves out on behalf of others. And as we do, we actually grow, let alone transforming our whole neighborhood and city and world. But it's grounded in this. This is why we have community groups, so that you can enjoy that sort of community and connection. And as you jump in, again, I urge you to join a community group. They will open up for signups this week. You'll get an email from me with the signups. Please test it, try it, join in. And see what happens. The God who blesses, creative, communal, outpouring and sacrificial self-giving love. But let's look at the blessing itself. Who gets blessed? The short answer is all creation. Now it's interesting, many churches around the world when they read Genesis 1, we, we usually don't have enough time to read the whole chapter. So we do what we just did. We read the first couple verses to set everything up. And then we skip down to the good part when humans come on the scene, when we get there, right? Tell me the story about me. But we skip over everything else, light and darkness, land and sea, flora and fauna and everything that teems throughout the earth. We skip over all that and then we get to us. But here's the fact. Humans didn't show up in this great story until what I believe is the symbolic day five. God's already been hard at work. And at the end of every day, go through and read Genesis 1 and notice after every moment of creation, every period of creation, God stops and looks at it and says, it is good. It is good. 
So who gets blessed? The answer is everybody and everything. It's all a temple. There is no clear divide between sacred and secular, between holy and mundane. It is not like God is any more present in this room right now than God is present with you when you are walking down the street or at work or alone in your home. It's all a temple. This is why I expect for you to meet God when you're in nature. This is why it makes total sense to me when people say surfing is my church. You can know something about God through the beauty of this very creation. It's a finger pointing to the bigger picture of a beautiful God who's created everything. You should expect to meet God in moments of great love or beauty or music. It's all a temple. But humans become the crown jewel of God's creation. It is only humans that are given the title blessed with God's image and likeness. We reflect the presence of God in a way that a chimpanzee can't, that a horse cannot, that a jellyfish cannot. And throughout centuries, people have understood this expression, the image and likeness of God in light of whatever their particular preference happens to be in that moment. So for people for whom ethics are really important, then image and likeness of God means you have moral responsibility. For those for whom spirituality is important, it means that you have a spiritual nature. For those for whom relationships are important, it means you're relational. But I think the point is it's all of it. It's all of it. And note, Scripture goes out of its way. This was written thousands of years ago in a patriarchal society that prized all the succession went through the male side of your family tree. All the property was owned by the men. All the earning power was the men. All the political power was the men. All of that revolutionarily in the opening pages of scripture, God created them male and female and gave them both dominion over all creation to help it thrive. That's revolutionary then. Unfortunately, that's still revolutionary in parts of our world today. And God is saying, male and female, I created you. You bear my image and likeness. In fact, when you have a community that includes all, you experience more of God's image and likeness. And let's look at that blessing. It says in verse 28, it wasn't printed, but it says God blessed them. I mentioned after every section, God says it is good. But after God created humankind, he said, it's all good. It is very good. And that does not mean that God noticed it was good and said, oh, wow, that's, I, I did pretty well there. That's, pretty, that's amazing. God was relish, delighting in its goodness. It is all blessed. Do you know how revolutionary that is? That God looks at physical creation, the dirt and the trees and the brooks and the streams and the fish and the plants. He looks at all of it and he says, that's all blessed. That's all good. The physical stuff is good. Here's why that matters. See, most Eastern religions will say that the physical world is an illusion. The best you can do is detach from it. Detach from desire. Separate yourself from it. 
Most Western religions, the foundations of Greek philosophy will say that the physical world is the dirty, nasty, decaying stuff. The important stuff is the a priori spiritual part of life. The spiritual is good according to the Western religion. But scripture has such a high view of the physical, material world. God created all. And he's going to renew it all. You see this come to its completion in Jesus' resurrection. When Jesus is crucified on a cross in front of his friends, three days later rises from the dead, he does not rise merely as a disembodied spirit. He is bodily, physically resurrected from the dead. And here's why that matters for us. When we think about new creation and renewal in our lives, in our city, What's more important? That you know God and have your sins forgiven and are reunited with the one that created you? Or that you have adequate housing and food and your kids are cared for well? What's more important? The answer is yes. It's always both and. We never divorce anything between those two ideas of spiritual renewal and physical care because God created all of it. That's why we proclaim the gospel in ways that are understandable and accessible and attractive so you can understand it and your friends can hear it. And it's why we care for all of our homeless neighbors at Know Your Neighbor. It's always both and. You know what else it means? As you're created in the image and likeness of God, when you hear those words, It is very good. That's a blessing. What if you heard those words over you first thing in the morning? When God looks at you before you've put on your shoes, before you've brushed your teeth, before you've earned anything, before you've turned in your TPS report or gotten great grades on whatever you're doing, God says, I delight in you. How would that change the way you view your own life? I also want you to notice that when Scripture opens the curtain of the great drama that God is writing, the first act is creation, not the fall. Follow me here for a second. If the Bible began with Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were tempted to eat the fruit. They ate the fruit. Then there's the fall and the fracturedness and the brokenness and all of that. That would be original sin. That would be the original curse. But that's not where the story of humanity or creation begins. It doesn't start with original curse. It begins with original blessing. We're not bad people trying to be good. We are the beloved image of God trying to live into that reality. Now, how do you get in touch with that? How do you access that sort of blessing? Genesis 1, in the beginning, the Spirit hovered over the chaotic waters. God enters into the chaos. Later, in John chapter 1, when the Gospel writer describes Jesus coming into our existence, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. 
The Word was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Nothing was made that was not created through Him. That Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you see what's happening? In Genesis 1, we have creation. It won't be too long until we do have Genesis 3 with the nuclear fallout of brokenness and fracturedness and violence and pain. And then you see Jesus come on the scene later, God himself coming among our midst in new creation. It says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. So in creation, you have the spirit of God entering into the chaos of water and bringing about beauty and order. And in the new creation, you have the incarnate Son of God entering into your story and bringing about new life. So the short answer to how do you enter into this is you can't. But the good news is he has already entered into your story. Now I know some of you have found this to be a place where you can ask your questions, process Christianity. You'd say you're not a Christian, but you found yourself to be welcome here. You know you're welcome here. But let me ask you this, as you hear this, Maybe you're saying, I don't believe that right now. That's fine. Isn't there a part of you that at least wishes that was true? And wouldn't it make sense that if the center of the universe really is a creative, loving God, that amidst all the brokenness that you and I see, wouldn't God be committed to putting it to right? What if God actually did enter in among us? and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And took all the violence, and the war, and the injustice, and the hypocrisy, and the loneliness, and the alienation, and took it all upon himself on the cross, and let it do its worst. He exhausted it. And three days later in the resurrection we see the final word on this world is not sickness, is not death, is not destruction, it's new life. So why does that matter? Three quick things and then we'll finish. First is it gives you a new identity altogether. We already talked about this. Your new identity is beloved. I don't have any tattoos. If I got any, I think I'd get one that says beloved. Just to remind me. Because I get spiritual amnesia just like you. And I forget. And when you forget that you're beloved, you will look to anything and anyone to tell you that you are beloved. Maybe this is why you work so hard at your job, just to get someone to notice that you're doing a good job. Maybe this is why you work so hard on your particular physical image or the way you come across on social media, just so you can get people to notice that you're loved. To convince yourself you're working so hard for something that's already been given to you. What else does it change? It means you have new meaning now, a new perspective on your career. Instead of your career merely being a way for you to earn more money or status or power for yourself, it's actually a way for you to use your generative capabilities in this world. And I would challenge you to use your creativity, use your imagination, whatever your post may be, whether you're an accountant or a janitor or any of the other occupations I mentioned earlier or others, there is a way for you to add to the beauty, creativity, and order of this world in what you do. Live into it. I want to hear how that goes. Try that for this week. Come back and tell me what this week's been like for you. And finally, it means you have new hope now. That word in verse two, two, this is the last Hebrew word I give you, we're about to close up here. 
But that formless void, the spirit hovered over the formless void. One of my favorite Hebrew constructions, and I'm that nerdy that I have a favorite Hebrew construction, tohu wabohu, formless and void. It's the idea of a garbage dump. Nothing good grows there. It's lights out. The story's over. It's garbage. Nothing's going to come of this. And it's there that the Spirit of God goes to birth a creation in the midst of everything. So when the Israelites are in exile in Babylon, and it's lights out, and it's over, and nothing good is going to happen here, they're reminded that God is in the business of creation in the midst of the garbage dump. And as you look at your life or parts of this world that feel like it's over and the lights are going out, just know, this is not me saying this to you, this is scripture teaching you and men and women and children who have gone for thousands of years would line up and witness to this. It's actually in that very place that God is waiting to do something new, meeting you right there. So as God meets us in the brokenness, as God meets us in the darkness and brings light, then we are awakened to go out and be light in the darkness. Now, of course, we're a lot different than God in God's image and likeness, so it will be on a trajectory, but we're not God. So it's going to be two steps forward and one step back, and you'll get it right sometimes, and you'll get it wrong sometimes, and so will I. But we'll walk together, and as we do, we'll remind each other, we'll live into this renewal. And then Renew Church becomes an alternate city in the midst of the city, showing what new creation looks like now. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this reminder of the true tune of the universe. I pray now that you would give us ears to hear your voice calling us toward yourself, toward wholeness, to be reunited with you and reconnected with each other, redirected outward in mission to serve one another. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.